My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, May 8th, 2013. We will be doing our light episode today, although it's not a light topic, it's a great topic. for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We do the comparative work and teach you how to engage in sound biblical hermeneutics. Yeah, you might be a layperson, but still, you need to know uh, the basic principles of how to rightly understand God's Word. And we do s- teach you this by giving you real-life examples uh, in the here and now from major teachers, preachers, uh, authors, and folks like that. And oftentimes, more than often, uh, we find that many of the popular, most popular preachers and teachers out there, well, they're not rightly handling God's Word, and the message they're bringing us is not actually sound biblical orthodoxy. Well, it's more like a theology of their own making. Now, once a week, we do a light episode of Fighting for the Faith. Not that the topic is light. Uh, Usually, the topics can be a little bit weighty. Uh, But we do a singular topic, and I usually hand the microphone over to somebody uh, you know, who's an expert in in the field. Although from time to time now, I guess I've turned the microphone over to myself as I play some of the lectures that I've been giving uh, different parts of the country. But <clears throat> that's a different story altogether. So what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be continuing working our way through. You know, this will be the last installment of the uh, kind of mini-series of lectures presented by doc- Dr. Michael Horton. You know, I tripped over my tongue there. Dr. Michael Horton 
on uh, the major arguments of the Book of Romans. So without any further ado, let's dive into it. Here's Dr. Horton. You, you know, you can't do this with every book of the Bible. You can't even do this necessarily with all of Paul's epistles, but uh, you certainly can with Romans. You can see six big arguments, and for the most part, they're so obvious that your uh, headings <laughs> there that you find in your ESV or your NASV, uh, whatever version you have, pretty well mark out where these shifts are in the argument. Shifts not away from the major concern, but shifts in this sort of seesaw way that Paul argues in a typically rabbinical fashion from one extreme to the other. And we've seen that uh, the first, uh, the overarching theme is the righteousness of God, and we've seen that the first uh, point that Paul makes is that all people are under condemnation, so the righteousness that condemns is his law, the righteousness that he freely gives is the gospel. And so his first argument is that all are condemned, Jew and Gentile, not the Jews are saved and the Gentiles are condemned, which is the older way of thinking. But now, with the revelation of Christ, the advent of Christ, Jews and Gentiles both are in the same situation before God. Bad news. But the good news is even better than the bad news is bad. And Jews and Gentiles are under this, uh, this condemnation together. They also get out together in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who delivers uh, his, his people, Jew and Gentile, together. It's all by grace. There's nothing that we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can do to add to it. It's the all-sufficient Righteousness of Christ imputed to us on his account, received through faith alone. In fact, the more we sin, the more grace abounds. Oh, terrific. I like that. So should we sin that grace may abound? Heaven forbid. <laughs> and now this argument uh, that, we have, that we saw last week, the relationship between the indicative and the imperative Indicatives are statements of fact. Imperatives are commands that arise as a result. The indicative here is not only that you are justified in Christ, but that you are holy in Christ and that you are a new person in Christ, a new creature. That you have been inserted into Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in baptism. And therefore, you are no longer what you were. Wow, really? No longer what I was. So I can stop sinning. Well, let me tell you my story. <laughs> Romans 7. Um, I find that even though this is true of me, I don't respond faithfully to the imperatives that arise out of these indicatives. I find that very often... While my, my heart is set on it, my mind is set on it, I find myself, nevertheless, giving in, caving in to my temptations, doing the very thing that I don't want to do, and not doing the very thing that I want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he looks to Christ, and he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. So he keeps 
moving back and forth in these ways. And in this particular argument, uh, throughout the whole chapter of uh, Romans 8, the argument moves uh, to Christ's heavenly intercession for us and the Holy Spirit as a deposit, a down payment on our final redemption as he has been sent into our hearts. Uh, so God's condemning righteousness, the first argument. God's gift of righteousness, the second argument. God's renewing righteousness, the third argument. And today we're focusing on chapter 8, God's eschatological righteousness. That's a big you know, uh, dollar word uh, that just means what God is going to bring about in history. At the end of the age, God is going to vindicate himself. God is going to be proved righteous. He's not only the justifier, but the just. He is the one who uh, not only gives his righteousness, but is righteous, and he will vindicate his people on the last day. Where will he do that? The resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead on the last day is judgment day. There isn't a, you know, a resurrection day, and then uh, when you know, God finds a good date on the calendar, we'll have a judgment of the nations. That judgment, that last judgment, happens in the resurrection as some are raised to everlasting life and others are raised to the second death. That's where our, that's where our judgment takes place. But for believers, of course, our judgment has already, that has already taken place Judicially, it just hasn't taken place yet consummately in our bodies and, and also in our, in our souls. Uh, we're not yet uh, 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 fully consummated in our holiness, in our righteousness, and confirmed in that righteousness. Still struggling with sin. But God will vindicate himself on the last day, and he will vindicate his elect on the last day. He will show that uh, not only are the elect just judicially before God because of Jesus Christ, but now in Jesus Christ they are actually holy and righteous. Their, their hearts and their lives and their conduct match the verdict for once. And there is no discrepancy between uh, what we can empirically verify in ourselves and what God declares to be true about us. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, that, that tension that Paul struggles with in Romans 7 will be over. We will not have any inherent internal contradictions between our our faith and practice, and what we believe, the indicatives, and what we practice, the imperatives. Uh, just because I guess I'm a preacher, I saw twos all over the place here, not threes, but twos, as good ways of sort of summarizing the argument that he makes here uh, in uh, chapter 8. First of all, there are two principles uh, namas, law, uh, can also be translated principle, and that's not just something that I'm making up from, you know, try, Reformed and Lutheran people like to make a distinction between law and gospel, or the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, 
aren't we kind of reading this into what Paul's saying here when he says there's a, the law of the spirit of life and then there's the law of, the, uh, 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 of sin and death. And uh, is this really two principles? Or is he talking about something else? Well, namas is easily translated uh, uh, principle as well as law. If you, if you throw in principle here, here's how it reads. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the principle of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the principle of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of, human, of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And this goes back again to the first argument that by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Because by the works of the law only comes the knowledge of sin. The same way looking in a mirror cannot actually clean your face. It can only show you how dirty your face is. And that's all that the law can do. The law uh, is our our hangman. The law is our executor because the law is just. The law is just carrying out a sentence. The law would carry out the sentence of justification. That we, are, that we are righteous and holy because we have kept it, if we had. The law is just telling things the way they are. It's, it, it's uh, simply illuminating the state of affairs. And there are two, So there are two principles here, as Paul says in Galatians 4, two covenants. And there, Paul says, there's the covenant of Mount Sinai, the covenant of law, and then there's the covenant of of Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the covenant of Sinai, link, he links to Hagar, the, the bondwoman in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the story, and the covenant of grace he links to Sarah, the one through whom the promise came. And so law and gospel, two covenants, and two mountains. That's how Paul contrasts these two principles in Galatians 4. He's doing the same thing, or at least assuming the same thing, I believe, here, with these two principles. Basically, to summarize, this is what I think the, uh, Paul is saying here that's so crucial in this, in this argument. It follows from what he's already said in the last part of sep- chapter 7. Look, I know this, I know this is totally counterintuitive. If you tell people what to do and you give them enough incentives, enough carrots and sticks, maybe even enough fear, they'll do it. They'll get it done. People who aren't living right need more law. And uh, what Paul is saying here is, I know as as counterintuitive as it sounds, the law came and there were more transgressions. The law exacerbated sin. The law made the rash form all over the body. The the, the law turned this thing into a forest fire. The law made no one perfect. What the law did was intensify it because it turned the spotlight on it. 
It really showed us how sinful we really are. And therefore, the, the, only in that sense can we say the law corresponds to sin and death. Not that the law itself is sinful, he hastens to add, but if I have two columns, and on one column I have sin and death, and another column I have righteousness and life, the law's got to go in, in the sin and death column. Because it just it exposes my sin and death, and it leads me to further, deeper, uh, uh, more entrenched sinfulness and rebellion against God. And so the, the real question is, is not, does holiness matter anymore for the Christian? The question is, how is holiness really possible? It isn't possible. Even, even practical, personal holiness in the Christian life is not possible according to the principle of the law as the basis for the covenant. Well, then let's get rid of the law. No, Paul doesn't say let's get rid of the law. What Paul's arguing here is, the law as a principle, in other words, the law as a covenant. The law functions very differently in a covenant of works than it does in a covenant of grace. In a covenant of law, law functions as the basis for justification. Do this and you will live. Fail to do it and you will die. Don't you know, Paul tells the Galatians, those who are trying to be justified by the works of the law haven't really read the law. They don't really know what it requires. You who, who glory in your circumcision, don't you know it's circumcision that requires you to do everything that's contained in the law under the threat of death? That's how, that's how the law functions in a covenant of law. But the way the law functions in a covenant of grace is not do this and you will live, but live. And you will do this. Here is what God has done. Now in view of his mercies, present your bodies a living sacrifice. So the question isn't, isn't the law, do we have a different law as Christians? The question is, how does the law, that same law, function in a covenant of works versus a covenant of grace? Well, it condemns in the one and it guides in the other. And so the Apostle Paul says, there are not only two principles at work here, there are two ages at work here. There is the present evil age and the age to come. And for Paul, this is Sarks and Numa, flesh and spirit. I won't ask for a show of hands, but uh, how many of us uh, grew up with thinking of spirit and flesh as two sort of semi-literal parts of us. I've got the spirit side and I've got the flesh side. Whenever I read about the flesh in the Bible, it's about my body or my passions or things related to my humanness. But my soul is sort of related to God and divinity. That actually comes from Greek philosophy. There's nothing Christian about that view of of, of the human constitution. Our, our souls are no more divine than our fingernails. Our souls are not immortal. Our souls and our bodies together will be made immortal on judgment day when we're raised from the dead. 
uh, well, and, and our souls, of course, go to be with the Lord forever. But they are reunited with our bodies on the last day. No, soul and spirit do not mean our spirit, but the Holy Spirit. So, uh, for Paul, these two ages are this age and the age to come. Jesus uses this contrast as well. The age to come has already broken into this present evil age, but it isn't finished yet. It hasn't. Re- it, there's a consummation awaiting us when Jesus returns. And this is the age dominated by the flesh, and this is the age dominated by the spirit. So this is not about a lonely individual the psychology of religious experience, a lonely individual sitting there and trying to make sure that he or she gives himself over to the spirit versus the flesh. This is cosmic. The horizon here is not the the psychology of the individual. It includes the individual. But it's cosmic. It's much grander than that. This, for Paul, means... This age, with all of the powers and potentialities it has, all that this age can accomplish, all that can be accomplished by our own willing and running. With our own willing and running, we can build great societies, decent societies at least. We can build decent uh, ships. We can build, we can send people to the moon. We can, this age of the flesh, even after the fall, has all kinds of potentialities. It has no potentialities for ascending into heaven. It has no potentialities at all for saving itself from sin and death. It is every time this present age with its potentialities goes to work, it just makes more sin and death. But the age to come is the age of the Spirit. And ever since Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has been working the powers of the age to come into the dough of this present evil age. And it starts with no condemnation. So Paul says, it starts out with, there is therefore now no condemnation. There are basically two religions in the world. One that says that uh, condemnation is, uh, no condemnation is a goal toward which we're headed and a religion that says no condemnation is the origin from which we travel. Um, in Latin, if, if you're interested, this is uh, the Terminus a quo versus the terminus ad quem. That the the goal from which or the goal toward which. And Paul very clearly says here, no condemnation is the goal from which. Being Not being condemned is not something we're waiting for on judgment day in the future. Not being condemned is the verdict of the judgment day in the age to come that has already been heard and rendered in the present. 
That's how tangible the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit's not associated with butterflies and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, eternally uh, plump babies bouncing from cloud to cloud with harps. The Holy Spirit is, is connected with stuff, with matter. The Holy Spirit makes things happen in the real world, not things that go bump in the night. This is the, the Spirit has brought our justification from Judgment Day to the present this morning. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes that verdict tangible and heard through the preacher's voice, through the bread and wine, and through baptism. The Holy Spirit is the one who does this. And so Paul says, because, he, because the Holy Spirit indwells you, you no longer belong to this category. You belong to this category. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian who's somewhere in the middle here. Every Christian has been tra- transferred from this category to this category and yet continuing to suffer. Spiritually, physically, in every other way. That's because we live at this intersection, this collision. <laughs> Not just intersection, this collision of the two ages. It affects our souls and bodies, it affects our minds, it affects the totality of, of who we are. But you are not in the flesh, Paul says in verse 12, but in the spirit. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Sorry, verse 9. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And then I think this is the sort of thesis statement for this chapter, for this argument. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That is great news. What this means is Christ is the first fruits of those who sleep. As Paul makes clear in in 1 Corinthians 15 especially, there aren't really two resurrections. Jesus' resurrection on Easter and our resurrection on the last day. It's one resurrection. Our head just happens to have been raised before us 2,000 years ago. He's the first fruit of the whole harvest. And we are a part of the same resurrection. That's why he is the head of a body. He is the first fruits of the harvest. The exactly same resurrection, or he's not our head. He just is the first to be glorified. And as the king goes, so the kingdom We know already what the whole thing is going to look like because we see Christ glorified at the Father's right hand. But how do we know we participate in that? How do we know we share in that? And Paul says here, because the Holy Spirit has been given to you as a down payment. You know, you used to give a coat in a law court just to make sure you'd show up. That was like bail. To make sure that you would show up for court, you'd give the, the court your coat, your jacket, cherished, precious possession. The Holy Spirit is Jesus' coat. 
you will, you, you, will, you will be assured inwardly, even as the word in the sacraments assure you outwardly. And you will cry out as I have during my whole ministry, not to God merely as sovereign, not to God merely as creator, not to God merely as redeemer, but Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy, in the most cherished form of address imaginable. And because of that, he can say finally, as I must say finally, uh, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's not what's happening right now. It's not have all the glory here and now. That I can't, you can't compare the sufferings we're going through now to the glory that will be revealed in us. I've got to just throw in here, contrast that with, with the message of someone like Joel Osteen who says, the, the best thing, that if, if you just follow these steps, these principles, I, I, I'll tell you what happened to me because I have the favor and blessing of God on my life for following these principles. I got a great parking space. I got bumped up to first class. I got the best seat in a restaurant. That's it? That's it? Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glories that will follow. Because that's the pattern that Jesus took. In, in Peter, First uh, Peter, it says, uh, the, the, the prophets foretold the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. We're following his pattern of, de- of, of humiliation and exaltation. The cross and then glory. And the Holy Spirit is the, the one running interference between these two ages. The Holy Spirit is the one who is the author, the consummator of the age to come. Who indwells our hearts now. The one who will raise our bodies just as he did Christ's lives within us. And he's Christ's coat. We know by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that we are children of God. And that we will be raised bodily at the end of the age. So that even now we're regenerated. Even now the inward man is being renewed while the outer man wastes away. But it will, it will be reversed on that last day. On that last day, finally, our bodies and our souls will share in that glorification when all things will be made new. We'll no longer be touched by sin and death, no longer be touched by unrighteousness. And God is making sure that all things work together for that end in our salvation, as he goes on to say. He says, uh, you know, who hopes for what he already has? But if we don't have it yet, we wait for it patiently. Look at all that has already happened because you're in Christ. You're predestined. You're called. You're justified. And one day you will be glorified. And it's so certain that he even puts it in the past tense. 
What shall we say then in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't even spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. How shall he not freely with him give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to the right hand of God the Father, who is now interceding for us. No, I I am convinced that in all things we are more than conquerors. And that's where we in our victory mode in American Christianity. That's our life verse. We are more than conquerors. Why? Because we don't suffer? Because Because we don't fall into temptation? We don't fall into sin? No. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, for we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered every day. But in all these things we are conquerors, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither things present nor things future, neither height nor depth, nothing in all of God's creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see how Paul moves from doctrine to doxology, praise, to duty. Therefore, therefore, live in the new world. Take up your new part in this play. Your old dead-end character has been drowned, and a new character has come to life. Let this be your script. Let this be the world you inhabit, the stage you inhabit, the air that you breathe in view of God's mercy, in view of the fact that he's already put you there. And even now, the powers of the age to come are penetrating your life and the Holy Spirit has been given to you as a down payment. God's righteousness will be vindicated and it will be consummated and there will be no sin and death in that new world. Maybe time for for, for one question. Sorry, I took up too much time. Alinda? Right? Mm hmm. Let me see if this answers your question. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of us, at least, were raised thinking that what Paul is saying here is be sure you're one of those who walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. But that would be an imperative, and the Greek mood itself doesn't allow us to take it as an imperative. It would be in that mood. 
if it were an imperative. It's not. It's in the indicative mood. But it already tells us that he's not telling us to do something. He's telling us what has been done to us and for us. He says, uh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Not for those Christians who don't walk according to the uh, flesh but according to spirit, but as those who, as Christians, don't walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. You say, but wait a second, he just got through saying in chapter 7 that it looked pretty carnal to me. It looked like he was walking in the flesh a lot. No, that was, that was the frustration. The frustration was that he is definitively a new creature in Christ and yet chooses uh, to, to give in. He so often gives in to, to temptation and sort of these routines that were once a part of his old his old life. But it's not like you've got one nature inside of you and another nature inside of you. It's that we have one person. We are one person defined by the age to come and yet still, still uh, not delivered from the effects completely of, of, uh, of Adam's guilt and corruption. Okay, I'll uh, uh, make sure I leave more room for questions next time. Um, And we'll get to one of the most vexing uh, arguments of Romans uh, next time. Okay, all of this good news. Good news, good news, good news. Pie in the sky by and by. Tell me about Israel, Paul. Why should we believe any of these promises that you're making to all these Gentiles? Has God just said, well, it didn't work out with Israel, so I'm going to go over to the Gentiles. And uh, very concrete questions that Paul will be answering next time. Okay, we're going to pause right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break, and we'll be listening to the next lecture in the series. or short lectures on the major arguments of the Book of Romans with Dr. Michael Horton. Don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
Siri, what is your analysis of the sermon Rick Warren preached this past Sunday? Let me think about that. Here you go. Rick Warren quoted 15 Bible verses out of context using 11 different translations and paraphrases. Even an iPhone utilizing artificial intelligence is smart enough to know that there is less than a 1 in 10,000 chance that Rick Warren was preaching the truth. Siri, can you explain your analysis of Rick Warren's sermon to somebody who is a fan of Star Wars? You have a greater chance of successfully navigating an asteroid field than you do of hearing Rick Warren accurately teach the scriptures. Have you ever prayed a sun stand still prayer? Why would I do something as silly as that? The story of the sun standing still in Joshua chapter 10 is not about prayer. Looking in Joshua chapter 10 to learn how to pray is like asking your Macintosh to teach you how to use Windows 7. What do you think of Joel Osteen's sermons? Is this a joke? No, this is not a joke. I'd really like to know what you think of Joel Osteen's sermons. Words like junk food, cotton candy, and cancer-causing artificial sweeteners come to mind. purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, and thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Mark your calendar now for April 25, 26, and 27, 2014. You see, it's not too soon to be making your plans, saving your pennies, and asking for work off April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the 11th annual Branson Worldview Weekend. This past year, we had people from all over the country and actually from other countries join us in the beautiful rolling hills of Branson, Missouri. So if you're looking to attend the premiere Understanding the Times Biblical Worldview Weekend and join us April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the Branson Worldview Weekend. It's for all ages. Children 11 and under are free. We also have a group rate and a family rate. The Worldview Weekends have been around since 1993. So we're one of the oldest Biblical Worldview conferences in America. So mark your calendar now for Branson, Missouri, April 25, 26, and 27, 2014. 
right, we're back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. Especially if you're not getting good, solid, Christ-centered, justification-by-grace-through-faith type of teaching in your church. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month. That's it. Just six ninety-five a month to support Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, let's uh, continue with the next lecture in the series. Again, they're short on the major arguments of the Book of of Romans. Here is Dr. Michael Horton. We've looked at the major overarching theme of Romans as God's vindication of his own righteousness that really this whole epistle is about God's righteousness and God's uh, vindication of His righteousness. In in Greek, vindication and uh, to declare righteous are really the same thing. Uh, Vindication is is declaring righteous. Uh, So when God vindicates His own righteousness, He is in a real sense justifying Himself. And the epistle to the Romans is not just about how God justifies the ungodly, but about how God justifies himself to the ungodly. And chapters 9 through 11 are really uh, 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 focusing on that aspect of justification. We've heard a lot about God justifying sinners, God being both the just and the justifier of the ungodly. But uh, in, in this argument, we hear about God justifying himself before the criticism that he has, not been unfaith- he has not been faithful to his covenant promises. Now, you can see that sort of this would be a, a very understandable question that people would have. Paul, appreciate all of the nice things that you've said about how people can be saved apart from works by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. My wife has another baby. What is that? What, what's going on? I don't have my glasses on. What? Okay. I guess... I... Yeah. Well, I guess I'll, I'll know, find out about it later. Uh, so back to Paul. Uh, the... Uh, God's vindication of himself in covenantal history comes up as a theme because he has said all of this wonderful stuff about how he justifies the ungodly. And uh, the Jews and the Gentiles together are all ungodly, and they can only be justified by an imputation of Christ's righteousness while they are themselves inherently guilty. Those whom God predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. What shall we say then in response to all of this? If God is for us, who can be against us? What can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor powers present, nor powers in the future. 
Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And everybody's just ready to, to, to go home on a full stomach. And then he says, now you're going to say to me, this is pie in the sky because God has been unfaithful to the Jews, so why should he be faithful to the Jews and the Gentiles together in one body now? Does this mean basically that God has gone to plan B? As, for instance, dispensationalism teaches. Dispensationalism teaches that God brought the kingdom to, to Israel, Israel rejected the kingdom, and then he went to the Gentiles to offer the kingdom more generally. Is that what, what's happening here? No. No, Paul says, let's go back to the history of Israel and explain what's going on here. So God is really on trial. God allows himself to be put on trial in Romans 9 through 11, just as he has put humanity on trial up till now, chapters 1 through 9. The dilemma here is uh, seen in the key, what I take anyway to be the key verse in verse 6, but it, 9, 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That means that it's not the children of the flesh or the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. That's the heart of the argument of chapters 9 through 11. What they had done, basically, what the the Jewish Christians had done, to some extent, following their Jewish Uh, compatriots, according to the flesh, what they had done was to confuse Zion and Sinai. Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, with, with Jerusalem, which is below. One place where Paul talks about this very clearly is in Galatians, with his analogy or allegory of two mothers. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, he says in chapter 4, Verse 21, you listen to the law, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. (laughs) And at that point in Galatians, as Paul was giving this allegory, you could imagine people saying, you missed Sabbath school a few times. I don't know what you're talking about there. You've got the story all wrong. Are you sure you studied under Gamaliel II? Do you really know? This This is Jewish history 101, Paul. You are really messed up. No, Sarah is our mother. That was the whole point of the narrative there in Genesis uh, 15 through 17. Sarah is our mother, not Hagar. Hagar's the mother of those Arabs over there. We are the heirs of promise. And Paul says, no, you've got to understand what's going on here. He says, uh, now you are children of Hagar apart from faith in Jesus Christ, Jews are not children of Sarah, except ethnically. 
But that wasn't the promise. The problem, if, if you just wanted to play this thing out ethnically, Hagar would have been the mother of, uh, of promise because she gave Abraham what she needed. By law, it wouldn't have gone to Eliezer of Damascus. That was one way to work it out, and that's what Abraham thought. But God said, no, I'm giving you a promise. It's through Sarah. So you have to rely completely on me. Not on you and your scheming and your plotting and your works. You have to look completely to me and my promise. Abraham said, well, all right. And he was justified. And that's the dilemma that is confronting the people in Romans as well, Jewish Christians particularly. How is it that we can believe these promises of God when Israel as a nation has not been converted? And Paul says, not all who are ethnically descended from Abraham are of Abraham. It's not that the word of God has failed. It's not that God has failed to keep his promise. It's not that the word hasn't done its job, as we heard in the sermon this morning, which quotes quotes from uh, the passage that was being preached this morning about Pharaoh. God's word doesn't fail. God's word doesn't return unto him void without accomplishing the purpose for which he intended it. But he doesn't have the same purpose in every instance. And here, clearly, the the purpose is uh, to bring the elect to saving faith and and to lead the rest in in their own sin and misery, hardened in heart and, in fact, to further that hardening. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, he says in 9.1, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul is is grieved in heart because of the massive unbelief of his kinsmen according to the flesh. But he says, as grieved as I am, and as much as I could wish myself to be cut off, if that would substitute for them. We have to reckon with the fact that God has always had a remnant. God has always saved people according to a remnant. Even his people Israel has been saved according to a remnant. When God called Israel, uh, Israel and Judah out of, uh, out of uh, uh, exile brought them back. He brought back a remnant. But we say Israel was restored in the land. But it was just a remnant. Much of Israel was left planting vineyards and, and intermarrying with pagans and so forth uh, back in Assyria and Babylon. Most didn't want to come back. Didn't really feel like they had any connection anymore with the land of Palestine. But a remnant returned and reconstituted Israel. 
And now we have a, new, a reconstituted Israel in the person of Jesus Christ who is Israel and everything attached to him is Israel. He redraws the boundaries of Israel around himself. But it's not that God has failed to keep his promise. Far from it, God has fulfilled his promise because the promise to Abraham was that through Abraham and his seed, meaning one, Christ, all the families of the earth would be blessed. If God just worked with the ethnic nation of Israel with a covenant, with a conditional covenant, no one would be saved. But God goes back to the Abrahamic covenant, which was made 430 years earlier, and now brings that to pass because a greater son of Abraham has fulfilled the covenant of works, has fulfilled that law that was sworn by the people at Mount Sinai. The true and faithful Israel has fulfilled the law so that we can inherit the promises. And not just so that we, you know, people in general, but we Gentile dogs can inherit the promise. We were outsiders. We were strangers to the promise. That history that he elucidates here is not our history. It has become our history because we've been grafted onto the vine. But this is a native history to the fleshly people of Israel. And we must never lose sight of that. We are the wild olive branches that have been grafted onto the vine, as Paul says later in this argument. Okay, that's the dilemma. The, the explanation you find in uh, 9.6 through 10.21. The Word of God hasn't failed. Look at some of the examples. Same mother and father. One child elect, the other child reprobate. How do you explain that? Give, give you another example. Uh, how about uh, Rebecca? When Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. So, so you, you, you can't base this on God's foreknowledge. You know, God didn't look down and see that Jacob was going to be a good guy and uh, Esau was going to be a terror because, in fact, the opposite was the case. Uh, you know, mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be Jacob's. Uh, Jacob was, was not the kid I would have chosen, that's for sure. Uh, and, and yet, before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, so that... God's purpose of election might stand, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. remember throwing my Bible across the room the first time I, I really read that. As a teenager, I thought, All right, if that's who you are, I don't want any part of you. And uh, about a week later, that thing that I hated so much became one of the sweetest, comforting things. It's just the weirdest thing how that happened. The same message that hardened my heart softened it a week later. Because it is this God who... who it's hard to hear for, at first that, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, the uh, Rolling Stone song, Get Off of My Cloud. 
this is my cloud, get off. This is my throne. Your uh, Two key principles of the universe, there is a God and you are not he. Uh, you're creature, I'm creator, I'm sovereign. That's hard to take at first because we think God is our co-pilot. He helps those who help themselves. And uh, he's sort of there for us, make us feel better and, and to help, you know, help shoulder the load a little bit. No, he's sovereign. Really. Actually. And then a week later, you know, you feel like this thing that was so, was an open wound from surgery uh, is, is now healing. And it's a, it's a blessed thought. But this is the this is part of Paul's defense of God's hidden purposes in history, God's righteousness in covenantal history. What uh, what shall we say then? You you know that Paul is is doing the rabbinical thing whenever he says, "Well, what shall we say then?" Or does this mean that he's he's basically uh, anticipating our line of questioning? This is a court trial. God's on trial in this chapter. We were on trial on the others, but God is on trial here. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? How can he get away with this? How can God choose one person and not another? Well, because they were one person had a soft heart. One person had a hard heart. One person was more open. One person was less open. One person... Now, that's exactly not what he's saying. Uh, Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, well, then why does he still blame us? (laughs) Or who resists his will? Is he pretty good at anticipating our questions after 2,000 years? It's not like there's a lot of variety you know, a lot of options in the questions that are provoked when we hear this. But who are you, a mere mortal, to ask back, back, answer back to God, why did you make me like this? Not exactly the answer we're all looking for. You know, like, okay, great question. Great question. Uh, not satisfying answer. But the question... Got me excited. I was waiting to hear an answer here that would satisfy me, and all I got was, you're not in the position, really, to be able to judge this one. Will what is molded say back to its molder, why did you make me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use? And another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, 
but also from the Gentiles. Look at, just imagine, think of it this way. What if election weren't there, what would you have? You wouldn't have vessels of mercy, you'd just have vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. But reprobation, vessels of wrath, is there simply to highlight the, mag- the, the, the greater magnificence of God's mercy in election. It's because of God's electing grace that anyone is saved at all. And it's not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the, of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Look at the option. Look at how how things would have happened in Israel, the ethnic state of Israel, if God had not chosen some to be saved. Stop looking at this as, why isn't the whole nation saved? What would have happened if God hadn't chosen, if God hadn't elected, if God's grace hadn't come? And now because it has, it's come to the whole world, not just to the nation of Israel. So what are you, what are you complaining about? Abraham's, Abraham's promise is now fulfilled. In the seed, the child of Abraham so that the blessings of God could come to the whole world. What Paul is saying here, as he says in Galatians, is that the church is not a parenthesis in God's plan. Israel is. The nation of Israel is a parenthesis in God's plan. It's the opposite of what a lot of us were taught in dispensationalism, where the church is this age that we're living in right now called the church age, which is a parenthesis in God's overarching history, which is really about the nation of Israel. And what Paul is saying is, no, it's just the opposite. God has had his church in the Garden of Eden. God had his church when he called Abraham and Sarah out of Ur of the Chaldees from a moon-worshipping family. God has had his church in exile in Babylon and Assyria. God has had his church when, when they were being thrown to the lions. God has had his church in the darkest days of the, of the Middle Ages. God has always had a church. He has not always had a nation. And now, Peter says, we have become a chosen nation. All of us, Jew and Gentile, together have become that chosen nation of Israel. Or, Peter adds, as Paul does here, where it was once said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called the people of the living God. That's how the purpose is worked out. That is how God himself is justified in this purpose of election and justification. This is how it plays out. It's not just about 
this, this plan of salvation is not just about how we get saved. It's not just about individuals and our individual salvation. It is about the cosmic courtroom where God is on trial, not just we. God is on trial for faithfulness to His covenant promises. And God condescends to prove His case in court, to defend Himself against the charge of inconstancy and unfaithfulness to His covenant promises. Where does that then leave Israel today? don't have time to go into that this morning, so I'll do that uh, next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Your great and precious promises have remarkably proved faithful throughout history despite our unfaithfulness. That in fact, precisely because of our unfaithfulness, Your faithfulness has been proved, though put to the test, has shown itself to be greater than all of our sin. Father, we celebrate Your righteousness this morning, that righteousness which is not just power, but power going in the right direction, power directed at always bringing about within history that which accords with your good character, your just and holy will. Help us, Father, be so directed. Help us to understand your purposes at least as much as you have revealed them so we too will celebrate your righteousness in all the earth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So what do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.